From member-supported CPR News, this is Purplish, a show about Colorado politics and democracy. I'm Andrew Kenny. And I'm Benta Berkland. Our guest today is CPR's public affairs editor, Megan Verley. Hey, guys. Hey, Welcome. thanks for being here. Uh, if by here you mean my basement and my pajamas, totally happy to be here. <laughs> is, that, is that where you escape the kids? Uh, yes, then they rattle the door like little poltergeists, but hopefully not <laughs> our recording Sp- session. Spooky. So as you can tell, we're recording from our homes once again. Nope, we don't live at the Capitol, but, but let's get to it. Well, we're going to be talking about how the politics of this pandemic are evolving, and we'll go over what's next for the state legislature. But before we do that, we're going to bring something back that we had briefly retired, uh, the hot bills segment. We had thought that we didn't need to do it with no legislature in session. Nobody would be interested in assorted bills. And yet, somehow, this week, we have some fresh hot, hot bills. Hot bills. Hot bills. Hot bills. Well, it's worth pointing out that the session is still temporarily paused. So we're still technically in the middle of the legislative session, Mm -hmm. even though it's been suspended for more than two weeks. Some of these bills are actually becoming law because they reached the governor's desk before the legislature paused its work. And that's actually the case with two of these bills on the most accessed page this week, uh, which are kind of interesting bills, or now I guess they're laws. One of them requires around 100 local governments to contribute more to the pension plans for their police and firefighters. And this one caught my eye because on the day that Polis signed it, the Colorado Municipal League, which is a pretty powerful entity, sent out this hmm. scathing email uh, complaining that the state was putting an unfunded mandate on local governments at this exact moment when the coronavirus and the economic uh, devastation around it is going to really hurt those budgets. Uh, so clearly a, a controversial bill that is now law. Well, you know, the CML, the Municipal League, doesn't scathe that often. They're a pretty conciliatory group. They're an alliance of uh, the cities all across the state. But it's not surprising to hear that they had that reaction because cities are looking at some of the most direct hits to their budget as a result of all this. Uh, They really depend on sales tax. And, you know, a lot of local spending, especially around restaurants, is plummeting. So I was calling around and talking to especially some of the smaller cities that are dependent on tourism, and they are kind of bracing to see what's going to happen and how much money they're going to have left in their budgets. Another bill I wanted to point out that the governor recently signed requires health insurers to cover fertility treatments for people who need them, so things like IVF. And Polis signed this bill, but he released a signing letter, which he doesn't always do, He's not really happy about this bill. He said he's a big supporter of helping people access fertility treatments, but he's concerned Uh that it could increase the cost of health insurance for everyone else. But he signed it anyway. He did. So he did warn lawmakers, though, to say, don't send me any more bills like this that (laughs) would require health insurance to cover something. There was so much happening in the few days before the legislature adjourned. I actually didn't even know this bill had reached the governor's desk. Well, funnily enough, our our third bill I want to talk about didn't actually become a law and was defeated. Uh, This one is getting attention despite the fact that it was a 2019 bill. Uh, There's a Republican bill that would have allowed notaries to notarize documents remotely, which, you know, is obviously a pretty big change to how notaries work. You traditionally have to go into the office and they have the stamp and everything. That did not pass last year, but just a few days ago, 
Governor Polis signed an executive order allowing notaries to do remote notarization. So that's another one of those issues where uh, it's gotten revived interest because of the changed circumstances, and we'll see if it sticks. So our first big topic is pandemic politicking. Obviously, everyone's been watching Governor Jared Polis through all this. Uh, they've seen him on his press conferences almost daily. But it also has been this this really interesting time for his usual opponents, the state Republicans. A big question about, you know, how do you handle a crisis when the other party is in power? How do you talk about what they're doing? Well, we saw our first uh, maybe partisan headbutting pretty recently <laughs> with this letter that the Senate Republicans sent out. At least 14 of them signed on to it. Hmm. taking Polis to task for his handling of the statewide stay-at-home order. That seems to have been a bit of a Rubicon in, in state politics that, that oh, got yeah. crossed. I think so. Until now, GOP leaders were largely supportive of Polis's actions and letting him do his own thing. Like mm -hmm. governors across the country, he has extraordinary powers now that were under this declared state of emergency. And the message was kind of, look, he's the governor. Let's follow his lead. Even though this letter was highly critical, Republicans said they still wanted to work with him. They had concerns about the process and the lack of flexibility. It is worth noting that two Republican senators, Jack Tate and Kevin Priola, did not yeah. sign the letter. Right. But like you said, 14 of the 16 Republican senators did sign on to this letter. And they tried to kind of thread a few different needles as they did this. You know, like you said, they're they're maintaining this respectful tone. They're saying, we want to work with you. But they lay out this criticism, both of the fact that, that Polis, they said, didn't communicate with them enough before giving the order. And they also start to undermine the idea that the order should be statewide and start to question how it was applied to certain rural areas. On the lack of communication point, Republicans said they, they thought that this was going to be done more collaboratively. And that's what the governor's office, they allege, told them. And in mm. one of the sections of the letter, they wrote that their emails and phones were lit up with, quote, an unrelenting torrent of questions regarding whether or not constituents could go to work, visit their loved ones, feed their cattle, go to the park or quickly rush to the grocery store. And these Republican senators said they weren't able to quickly ease people's minds or, quote, quell their fears as the facts, context and details of the executive order were not presented to our caucus. So... I heard from Republicans who felt like they couldn't fully represent their constituents. Hmm. I guess the question for a governor in Polis's position is, how quickly, how decisively do you act? You know, you can't always completely broadcast these decisions because when you're putting in the statewide kind of lockdown, it does need to be kind of cauterized and quick to some extent. But on the other hand, you, you don't want that situation where people are just confused. And of course, as you look down this letter, it's not just about process. They also have a concern about the statewide order itself. And it's very um, sort of softly couched, which I think is interesting. But they do raise the idea that maybe it's not quite time yet to have the entire state stay home. Which is, of course, the, the classic problem with any of these quarantine orders is people don't want to do it until they see the effects of the virus, at which point it is uh, generally too late. But the letter points out that, like in Mesa County, there have only been, at the time of the letter, five identified cases. And you get the sense that they are challenging the governor to make more of an accounting of how he's balancing the economic devastation of this order with uh, the health needs of the state. 
in either case, it did kind of feel like Polis responded a bit to this, or maybe it was just good timing because in his next press conference, he had a whole PowerPoint, a slide deck with all these different charts and information about the spread of the virus and expected death tolls without action. So we'll see if that puts any of these questions to rest. And, you know, I think this statewide order is just philosophically hard if you're a person who believes in limited government uh, and and not having the state insert itself into people's personal choices and then into um, especially into the business world, because that's exactly what Governor Polis has done in a big way. So I expect as this goes on, we likely may see more criticism. And we're also seeing some of this divide within political parties at the local level. The El Paso County GOP put a very controversial Facebook post up Hmm. briefly that asked the public whether they believe the coronavirus was a psychological operation or kind of a hoax. And the state GOP party saw that post and said they thought it was inappropriate and they asked the local county to immediately take it down. And it was taken down, but not before people had taken screen grabs of it and it started circulating. The head of the GOP party in El Paso County issued this statement saying that she was just posing the question and it's fine to pose questions. And Just asking she got, questions. And she got a lot of comments on the local party's Facebook page demanding that she resign and saying that people felt it was really a hurtful post that shouldn't have been up on the Facebook page at all. That's not surprising to me, given what a strong distrust of media, of mainstream institutions, of elites has developed in a lot of the Republican Party base. That's interesting that at this moment where there has been that trend going on for a long time, now the party, and and you saw it with the state party, is saying, no, you need to trust the scientists, you need to, to trust what you are hearing in the mainstream media about this disease and not not raise questions like this. You know, you said thread a needle, Andy. I think there's a, a lot of needle threading going on right now. And I think right now politics are really playing a bit of a backseat here. Yes, you are seeing some local divisions, but overall in Colorado, I think there's this sense of rallying together, whether you're Republicans or Democrats, and people are still just trying to wrap their heads around how quickly daily life has changed in this state in such a short time period and what it all means. I think we're going to see more divisions weeks and months down the line when lawmakers and the governor and and other folks have to decide how Colorado gets back on its feet, what policies should pass, what to do with the budget. There's just going to be so many questions we can't even anticipate. And Granted, we'll be close to the presidential election then, so politics will come back, but it's been interesting to see it kind of be on the sidelines at this moment in time. Well, this season of Purplish was going to be really tied to the 2020 legislative session. We were going to keep you updated as everything evolved and the Democrats chased these big priorities. That has ground to a halt, of course, with the session suspended, and it's been unclear when lawmakers would even come back to start, you know, salvaging what was left of the session. Well, even though we don't know exactly when lawmakers will come back to the Capitol, we did get some clarity because the state Supreme Court sided with Democrats and ruled that because Colorado was in this declared state of emergency, a public health emergency, lawmakers can continue the session past the original end date, which was May 6th. Well, what that means is 
the clock starts ticking again whenever lawmakers come back. So they're not going to lose any legislative working days because of this pause they're taking yeah. because of coronavirus. Selfishly, I, I saw this and I thought, oh, my God, what am I going to do about, you know, I, I'm supposed to go to a couple weddings in June or July. I'm supposed to go on trips. And then, frankly, I realized that the, the trips and the weddings and all that stuff's probably canceled anyway. So uh, we'll, we'll all be in the Capitol together with nothing better to do. Yeah, sorry, politics people. Summer is now doubly canceled. Oh, Double gosh. canceled. <laughs> um, so once they do get back in session, like we started talking about, one of the most pressing things they'll probably have to address is what to do about the state's fiscal picture. Yeah, they got their last kind of update on state finances in late March when coronavirus was really getting bad, but only beginning to get bad. And already they were downgrading by a billion dollars their expected revenues for the next year and a half. That is pretty painful. That's probably just for starters. Uh, I spent some time calling top lawmakers. I talked to Senator Dominic Moreno, who's on the Joint Budget Committee. And he said that there's a really strong chance that the next set of updates, which should be coming within the next couple of weeks, will be more dire, will be even worse. And it could get to the point, he acknowledged, that we'll be looking at, at even a shrinking budget next year, which would mean now, instead of having at least a, a little bit of money to catch up with the state's growth and new programs, they could be looking at reducing programs compared to this year. Colorado's constitution requires the legislature to pass a balanced budget. Yep. So it's much different than than Congress. We can't easily raise taxes. So it has to be balanced. And I think we're going to see a significant shift in priorities from Democrats who are in charge of the legislature. You know, it's been almost a decade since Colorado had to write a budget with cuts in it. And huh. Uh, Venta, I'm sure you remember, like, that is an excruciating process because everybody who's going to be a loser comes out to to talk about what they're losing. And it's uh, it's painful. It's painful for state lawmakers. And they haven't had to do this, most of them, uh, in their careers so far. And just a few weeks ago, they weren't expecting to have to do this now. So people are grappling with what's at stake. What's really striking about a disaster like this is that this leaves the state with very little money to respond even as you can see the demands are getting so strong. like it, it, Recovering from a crisis is really costly. And Colorado just, well, you know, we've got some emergency funds that probably total up more than $100 million, but that's nothing compared to the scale of response we're going to see from the federal government instead. Indeed, it's going to make that federal stimulus uh, incredibly important to the state. You know, the idea of the, the federal government stepping in to beef up the unemployment insurance program, mm-hmm. uh, direct payments to uh, folks to kind of get some of their money back into the economy. These are things the state can't do, but will happen because of that giant federal stimulus package. Yeah. Speaking of, you know, I wonder if if this federal stimulus package, this embrace of this modern monetary policy, is that going to change anyone's beliefs about the role of government? Well, we did have Republicans like Senator Cory Gardner support this federal stimulus package, and it had a lot of bipartisan backing. But I'd be surprised if, if this incredible moment in time really changes people's philosophical ideologies about the role of government and I, I could be wrong. We, there's so many unknowns out there, and I think a lot of it could also depend on how efficient things are run and how quickly the, the country can get back on track and improve the economy and people can start working again. So a lot of unknowns, but you, you both may have a different opinion if this will really change people's ideas of government. 
I honestly don't think so. And I think it's worth noting that the big thing that individuals will see out of the stimulus package is a direct check. And that is actually a can be a fairly conservative idea. The idea that people are the best deciders of how to spend money. So this stimulus hmm. package, it doesn't create like a WPA, not that you could employ people right now because we're all stuck at home. It hmm. gives money directly to individuals, which is probably the most small government way to enact a giant stimulus like this. <laughs> yeah. Um, one, the last thing that I'll be keeping an eye on, partially just because I've been so focused on the expansion of the unemployment program, which has been really dramatic. They've brought in whole new categories of people just temporarily who were never covered before, independent contractors, gig workers. Uh, you know, one thing we've seen in the past is it is hard to to take away a benefit once you've given it to a new class of people. So I, I still suspect that some of that could amount to longer term change, especially because those gig workers are so important to our economy now. Let's wrap this episode up with Wait What? That's the regular segment we do. Uh, usually we pick out some moment of levity or, or just unusual activity in the state capitol. Uh, it's, it's been a little bit harder stuck at home, but I think we've still got some, some observations. One thing that stood out to me, Andy, was how lawmakers decided to continue adjourning the session. When they mm. first pressed pause on the session, it was March 14th, and that was for two weeks, which ended March 30th. Lawmakers told us at the time they all had to come back to the Capitol and vote to extend this resolution to pause the session. That didn't end up happening. We had the House and Senate come back and not have a quorum of lawmakers and then adjourn hmm. the session for three more days. And then they're going to just keep doing that just several for three days. days at a time. Yes, that's what the rules allow. But this wasn't something any of us anticipated. And it was a real scramble to try to figure out what they were doing because we... Wow can't track them down very easily right now. I, I think it's always interesting when it, those of us or, or you guys tasked to cover the legislature uh, think you know what rules they're operating under, and then they pop up and they're like, nope, totally different, quorum, right. not necessary, <laughs> having a deadline, not necessary. Like, it is really kind of a, a an important wait what moment because yeah. it's important to understand the rules of the game. And boy, right now, the rules are not the rules anymore. That's it for this week's episode. Purplish is a production of member-supported Colorado Public Radio. Learn about becoming a member and join today at CPR.org. I'm Andrew Kenny with my colleagues Benta Berkland and Megan Verlee. This episode was edited by Megan Verlee and produced by Shane Rumsey. Our executive producer is Rachel Estabrook. CPR's head of audio innovations is Brad Turner, who also composed our theme music. If you're enjoying Purplish, help others find us. Like and review this show on iTunes. And to keep up with everything we've talked about this week and more, follow us on Twitter. I'm at Benta Berkland. I'm at Andy K-N-N-Y. And I'm at CPR Verley. We'll be back in your podcast feeds next week. Until then, this is Purplish from CPR News. From member... Someone in here? Okay, you got to get out of here. <laughs>
<laughs> well, you should have got dressed before I started.